Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite t-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixdown. Cranking up. Right here on 3CR. We're with Mark Wood. He's a criminologist at Monash University exploring the way youth crime and social media intersect to create a rather interesting and perhaps disturbing kind of celebrity culture online. Mark, are you there? You've talked about how youth gangs become brands, and you've seen the apex, the so-called apex gang, as a local example of this. I was wondering where the media, especially tabloid media, what its role was in this branding process. So the tabloid media has had a massive role in um, essentially yet yeah, generating the brand that Apex is today. Um, so what we're seeing now is a number of individuals, let's say, tagging uh, graffiti, uh, Apex, on stuff. Not actually related to the gang at all, but um, nonetheless kind of uh, mimicking that behaviour. So, yeah, the kind of moral panic that has been generated around Apex has had a massive role um, in creating that brand and actually kind of amplifying um, their behaviour or their criminal behaviour. And uh, you've actually suggested in your your work, I know you're, you're doing some research on this, and the connection between social media and criminality and, and youth crime, um, this sort of stuff actually gives the, the amplification through the tabloid media, gives the, the gangs or the so, so-called gangs a fair bit of publicity and, in fact, work as a recruitment drive. Precisely right. So with performance crimes, so that is crimes which are essentially undertaken um, for the camera and in order to upload the footage online. The very purpose of these crimes is to kind of generate infamy or celebrity. And in so, if you're um, kind of generating a moral panic about a particular group and their behaviour, and if that group's committing performance crime, then you're giving them exactly kind of what they're they're after. So there is that amplification effect there. The the thing that, when I was um, looking at some of your work... um, the thing that reminded me of, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm sure you've made this connection, was is the Hell's Angels. The Hell's Angels and a number of the bikey gangs, you could say they were kind of like brands as well. Absolutely, absolutely. There's numerous examples. Um, the past fifty years, where the mass media has had a major role in kind of um, amplifying the deviant behaviour of a particular group. Um, so going back to uh, criminologist Jock Young's famous studies of uh, uh, drug-taking subcultures and the effect of the mass media in um, 
kind of further making them retreat, these individuals retreat from society. Um, there's just countless examples. And the Hells Angels is a fantastic one. Yeah, and look, the the other thing that I guess, um, and really what your where you where your work is coming into it is, there's something rather different in in this case, in the, in the sense that social media allows um, the gangs or or the groups to actually bypass the media, the mainstream media, and actually work on their own to upload their own stuff. You've called this, as you've just said, something called you call it an interesting term, performance crime. And Facebook becomes critical in this. Give us some examples of, of uh, we talked a little bit about the Apex Gang, but are there other examples that you can give? So perhaps the, um, the other kind of major form of performance crime, particularly around about 10 years ago, less so now, um, is happy slapping. So um, setting an unsuspecting person up for an assault, assaulting them on camera, um, slapping or punching them, and then uploading the footage online. So happy slapping. It was a big, it was a big moral panic around it in around about I think it was 2006, 2007. It, that was in, sir, in, sorry, that was in Australia, was it? That was in, that was primarily in the UK, but the kind of fear um, surrounding happy slapping as a phenomenon kind of became um, transcontinental. Um, so it kind of uh, migrated over to Australia and uh, to lesser to a lesser extent, um, and in. The states, there's the knockout game is another example. So similar principle to happy slapping, um, going out and trying to knock someone out on camera um, in order to upload the footage online. So these are these are um, the classic examples of performance crimes. The other the other one that I can think of closer to home, and um, may, maybe this is, doesn't fit exactly, but I, I remember a couple of years ago there were these, bur- I guess you call them burnout races in some of the suburbs that um, young people were getting into cars and I think they were filming the stuff and loading it up onto Facebook as well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Another um, fantastic example. So, yeah, these are your kind of modern-day performance crimes and social media is absolutely integral. Um to this kind of behavior. So social media has democratized the production and the distribution of footage that's, and content. That's and a, it applies yeah. for... That's a nice way of putting it, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> democratizing it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. No, that's very, very nicely put. Look, the other thing, I, when I was reading through some of your stuff, and you, you don't have to necessarily comment on this, but these are a couple of questions I throw out there anyway. One of the things that strikes me about this phenomenon is its connection with ISIS. Now, I'm not saying that there is a direct connection, but ISIS was very clever in its way of using social media to publicize its executions. And that was, again, a, a way of, if you like, democratizing, but also um, you don't want to think of ISIS in terms of de- democratizing, but in in terms of that idea of celebrity culture, mm. there's a, there's a massive amount of research into um, uh, jihadist use of social media and new media. Um, I'm not sure if anyone's actually made the link between kind of performance crime as a concept and ISIS yet. So you might be onto something. Oh, we paid for that. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> Got to get onto it. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, I'll. I'll uh, I'll keep that in mind. Look, the other thing I wanted to ask about was um, 
again, something that you probably saw was was early January, there was uh, uh, something that happened in Chicago with social media and the black Afro-American community. And they, um, did you know about this? They, they um, I guess they kidnapped and beat up a, a young, a teenage white guy. They posted online and they were using this to to talk about Donald Trump. They were using anti-Trump um, slogans in the process of this. And then this was connected to the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. Yes. So this is kind of, I guess, the next stage of performance crime. If you're, I'm not sure if I'd categorize that one so much as a performance crime, um, given that it's kind of more politically motivated and typically performance crimes are viewed as kind of a bit apolitical in a way. But yeah, this is the kind of next stage of kind of democratizing um, kind of criminal uh, footage and images. So the live streaming of violence, and it's something that uh, Facebook is kind of uh, racking its brains over at the moment, about how to kind of respond to um, live streaming crime. Now, if I've got it right, and this is uh, this is uh, another aspect of, of this discussion, is you say that social media does play a part in the rise of the gang as a part of a celebrity branding process, but actually it's way more complicated than that and way more involved, and that by focusing on the technology, it ends up simplifying or, or really hiding some very complex issues. Absolutely. So, I mean, um, you know, every generation going all the way back to Plato <laughs> has worried about new media. So when writing came along, Plato was concerned that, uh, and Socrates were concerned that it would kind of uh, ruin people's memory and so forth. And the same goes for the social media. So there's been um, quite a bit of concern about kind of the rise of social media and particularly um, kind of youth's use of social media. But if we kind of focus too much on the technology, we really are obscuring a bunch of um, socioeconomic and cultural factors that come into play um, in the formation of gangs. And it's kind of like, um, you know, you can't, there's no one cause of, of crime at all. It's like um, asking, you know, what causes disease? Mm. <laughs> you know, it could be, you know, what disease? So when we look at gang formation, we have to kind of look at it on a very um, almost individual level. And yes, there can be some um, kind of common factors or risk factors for gang involvement, but there is a bunch of reasons people get involved in criminal networks. And focusing on the technology, yeah, it obscures all of that. Mark, I, I'd really like to talk to you a bit more, but we've got to leave it at this point. So thanks so much for being on Communication Mixdown. No worries. Thanks for having me, John. And I was talking there with Mark Wood, who researches in the area of criminology, and he's been investigating what he calls anti-social media and deviance amplification, particularly the role, as you heard, of social media as it relates to youth crime. We're Communication Mixdown. The 18th National Sustainable Living Festival is on again from the 4th to the 28th of February 2017. As dangerous climate change continues to threaten the things we care about, a sustainable lifestyle and restoring a safe climate is more important than ever. 
featuring leading forums, artworks, talks, exhibitions and a new online festival program, it's time to ramp up the message and protect the things you care about. Event applications and full details at slf.org.au. A 3CR supporter. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. The political world has been turned upside down, according to lots of people. Great Britain is leaving the EU. Donald Trump is president of the United States and One Nation is on the rise in Australia again. Political pundits and commentators are scratching their puzzled heads and asking how they got it so wrong. And lots of these same pundits and commentators are pointing to social media to help explain these unforeseen shifts in political consciousness. Colette Snowden has also been contemplating these shifts and the relationship to social media. She's at the University of South Australia, and she researches public communication and the impact of new media on politics. Hello, Colette. Uh, Hi there. Now, your view is that social media in the realm of politics has, I guess what I would call, a contradictory pull. It's both an asset and has severe limitations. And I like the analogy that you draw which characterized social media as a form of communication being equivalent to being at a football match compared to a dinner party. Yes. Yeah. I think that that people forget that politics is actually a very long, slow process. You know, the process of change, when we look at it historically, it, it often seems to happen overnight, but when you start to trace it back, it it goes a long way. For example, if you look at the women's suffrage uh, movement, uh, it took over 100 years for American women to get the vote. It didn't take quite as long for Australian women for for various reasons. Uh, It took French women even longer. The civil rights movement uh, uh, can trace its roots back to the abolitionist movement. But, But social media creates a false expectation that political change can occur quickly and suddenly. And and that defies everything we know about politics. Now, you've said uh, in the things that I've read about your work that um, in terms of what you've called cause-related issues, social media can be very effective in mobilizing uh, communities. And you give the example of the Free West Papua movement. But you also say at the same time social media can be bogged down in endless repeated messages and lots of simplifications. That kind of I'm right, you're wrong sort of denunciations which can lead to racism, intolerance, and bigotry. Have you got... Tell us a little bit about those sorts of things. Social media is very good at creating awareness, but awareness by itself has no real value. You You can be aware of something... But unless unless you begin to engage in the real politics of getting legislation, regulations changed, um, then awareness is kind of empty and, in fact, it's very frustrating. Um, 
So once something, once social media creates an awareness, what happens next? You know, um, the the Centrelink situation recently. Social media was fantastic at creating awareness and understanding of the extent and the damage that the the very poor management of Centrelink's uh, IT system uh, and communication had created. But here we are, we're, at, we're February, we're still week, weeks on what has changed. Mm-hmm. Everybody's more aware of it, but, uh, and, and what happens is that then people get tired. They, they, get, they get disillusioned. They, 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 they lose heart. And in, in some cases, they give up. Um, so, so in that, that in that sense, I think that social media is contradictory. And if I can, uh, if I can sort of tease out what you've been getting at, it's you, I think what you're saying, and I think other people are saying this as well. But you've said it very, very nicely. Is that it's really not clear how influential social media is in the say the realm of political communication, but that politicians and advisors of politicians are taking that social media use very seriously and tracking it as much as they do with traditional polling. But you, yeah. I think you're... Arg- sorry, go that, ahead. That's right. And, and I think a lot of people who, uh, and I would count myself uh, amongst them, who are very interested in politics... We, we need to temper our enthusiasm and our understanding with reality. I've been tracking some of the media in smaller American cities, you know, the ones like Duluth and Des Moines and Madison, Wisconsin. Mm. And American news media has different news values so that national and international news are not nearly as prominent as they are in Australia. And their local news continues to dominate. So our understanding of how the people who actually voted in America are perceiving the situation in their own national politics is influenced by not only what we see on on um, social media, but how that then influences the reporting that we see in Australia. And uh, someone... Um, on my feed posted the other day uh, that they thought they should get off uh, Twitter because um, she could feel the anxiety pouring directly into her cerebellum. And I I thought that was a really good description of of what it feels like to be following an issue on Twitter. But it's not like that for a lot of other people because they're not they're not constantly engaged with it. I think but that's the, yes. I think that yeah. that was an interesting point. That uh, again, something that you you wrote was that it's misplaced in a way the, the attention that's placed on social media by politicians and their advisors and and I suppose other people as well. Perhaps even meet the mainstream media. The fact is that it is a very selective group of people who are using that. It doesn't necessarily reflect. Um, you know, other concerns, and there's many, many people who aren't act- as active on it as as some people are. And even the people who are active on it, uh, the, the, it there's a hierarchy. You know, there's actually 
a very small community of influential users when you when you um, when you look at it and you you break it down. So it's really uh, it really is another form of media that's a broadcast media with with a lot of people shouting from the sidelines mm. and and feeling very um, uh, you know pleased with themselves if someone retweets something they say. Yes. But, whether whether it actually influences the way that people have an opinion about things um, is very hard to gauge. I mean, the whole result of the um, of the two major uh, events that you mentioned, Brexit and and the U.S. election, tend to to indicate that that's not the case, and and maybe we should be more concerned about the way that the data that is generated by social media use is being analysed and, and used by people in politics. Now, this leads me to um, perhaps our final question, because we, we do have a, a limited amount of time, but something that's uh, coming to Australia is an organisation called Cambridge Analytica. And I just wanted to read a quote from uh, a Republican who said, there are no longer any experts except Cambridge Analytica, respected um, Republican pollster Frank Luntz said of the firm's role in Mr. Trump's shock victory. There, they were Trump's digital team who figure, figured out how to win. And they're on their way to Australia. Now, briefly, tell us a little bit about Cambridge Analytica and how you mentioned this, you know, profiling of of people's social media use. Well, it's it's a come. I, I, I think that the person you quoted might be going a bit too far. They're, they're 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 currently successful, but I'm sure that there are many other people now scrambling to form new companies that do analysis of 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 data. And match it to, and, and work out how to to look at the patterns of of uh, human behaviour. I mean, it's basically marketing. It's it's basically marketing science, being uh, gathering data and drilling down into it to identify things like uh, socio linguistic patterns. So what what words do people respond to? What issues do they they respond to? It's um, what political um, analysts and campaign managers have done forever. They mm. just ha- that that, but now they have a more refined tool. Mm. Um, and it might be it's probably in many ways more accurate. Now the claim. They, they, they claim that that they're making that this influenced the um, the outcome of the the U.S. election. I think is contestable when you look at probably the the most reliable um, uh, pre- prediction was made uh, in 2015 by a, a historian um, from Boston mm. who looked at the patterns of voting over in elections over a long period of time and came up with 10 things that you uh, that that indicated which way the election would mm, go mm. and said that you needed to have six of them to mm, win mm, mm. Uh, and in a way uh that was the most accurate that was the most accurate pre- predictor 
Well, I'm, um, I'm glad you talked about it in terms of marketing. I think that's something that we can probably all relate to, and it, 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 it sort of gets gets rid of the obfuscation, I guess you could say. Look, we've got to, got, uh, yeah. we have to leave it there, Colette, but I want to thank you very much for being on Communication Mixdown and give us, giving us your insights. That, that's uh, fine. Thank you for the, uh, giving me the time to... And I was talking there with Colette Snowden. She's a senior lecturer at the Communication School in the University of, New so- University of South Australia, specializing in public communication and politics and the consequences of emerging technologies. Communication Mixdown, that's us. We'll be back next week speaking to you then.